The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a changing of the guard at City. The big bank tapping Jane Fraser to become the first woman to run a major Wall Street bank. We'll find out what is next for City. Plus, we've got earnings from Oracle and Peloton, both stocks on the move after reporting. We'll break down the after-hours action and later hitting the jackpot. Sports betting stocks on fire as the NFL gets ready for kickoff. Find out if you should take a gamble on these names. We start off with a major reversal on Wall Street. And you can see the story in the charts. Check out the S&P 500. Started the day in the green, gave up the gains around 2 p.m. to finish close to session lows. Same story for tech stocks. NASDAQ 100 giving up an early lead to finish just off its lows of the day. You saw the same thing play out in names like Facebook and Netflix. Both start stocks starting strong finishing around session lows. You can extend this, by the way, to regional banks, to healthcare, to energy, to small caps. So what does the action today tell you, Guy Donnie? It's not encouraging. And, you know, I'm not going to make a big deal out of today. I, I try not to make a big deal of any days. Yesterday, you know, we had to show of hands. I don't think any of us really were convinced by the rally. And I'll, I'll continue to say, you know, 30 VIX suggests we're going to continue to see days of one and a half to two percent moves. And I happen to think on aggregate, it's going to be lower. Again, you know, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but the environment that we find ourselves in, in terms of small business, in terms of the consumer, in terms of a lot of different things as we head into the fall, on top of which an election that's probably a coin flip, I don't think is particularly bullish for the broader market, and especially on the back of a rally that's been historic. So I think it tells you that we're going to continue to do this slow move lower, in my opinion. Yeah. Karen, what caught, you, caught your eye today? And do you continue to hedge? Uh. Well, I, I did raise my hand yesterday just to clarify, because I, I do think all the things that caused this rally are still there. Maybe other kinds of stocks rally. Some of those parabolic ones uh, will probably be left out. But uh, to me, I think it was the uh, even the skinny package that failed that sort of maybe was the catalyst for the sell-off. I'm not exactly sure of the timing of when that happened and when things started to sort of turn south. Um, you know, I, I am long Facebook. I am long Apple, long Alphabet. So I didn't love seeing that. But I, I, um, I thought actually the banks hung in there pretty well for a down day. And we'll get more to more on that. But and some of the industrial stuff, I'd look to buy some FedEx, but it really didn't move very much. I'd like to buy some of that. Um, things like uh, Guy's Cat. Um, I think they did OK. So I'm still in the in the I'm still optimistic that um, that sell off was really very much about taking the froth out of some of the huge Nasdaq flyers and not uh, the end of a bull market. Yeah. Dan, your thoughts. 
Yeah, I didn't know Guy had a cat. I know he has dogs as they bark through our show every day. Um, but, you know, listen, I think what's really interesting, and it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that what led on the downside today in the last few days that we've seen downward volatility were the very things that were defying gravity um, on the way up. They're heavy. They need to work off a lot of excess. I'd keep a close eye, you know, on Apple in particular. I think the panic low on Monday was about, uh, or excuse me, Tuesday um, was about 111. Um, you don't really want to see that break there. The S&P 500, the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100 closed just above um, those lows from the other day. So we don't want to see them round trip and make new lows. And I'll just mention, you know, Mel, you mentioned briefly the small caps, the Russell 2000, you know, has underperformed the entire way. It's still down about 10% on the year. And that has materially broken its uptrend from the March lows. You know, and we talk about the stimulus and you talk about skinny, you talk about fat, you know, they front unloaded all this fiscal stimulus and we don't have another package here. We have structurally high unemployment. I don't care what that eight and a half print says. It's still well above 10 percent. And I think the Russell 2000 is a bit more reflective of what's going on in Main Street. And Wall Street's going to work itself out over the next few weeks. And I suspect it comes at lower lows. We may not have a stimulus package or stimulus package five or whatever number we're at at this point, but we do have a Fed and we have got a Fed meeting on September 22nd, Tim. So could it be Jay Powell once again to the rescue? The plunge protection team deployed to save these markets? Yeah. PPT. Uh, and, and, you know, so I'll remind my my hand raising yesterday was a halfway. So Karen talked about her full way and she talked about the Fed. Um, and, you know, she also said frothy. I, I think if you're if you're taking a sip from that frothy mug right now, you you have a little bit of a froth mustache. I think you can pull back more. Um, I, I think if you look at levels from June 26, which is when a lot of these mega cap stocks and even not the, the top five, but names like Square and PayPal and NVIDIA went, went, you know, ran crazy. I think those are levels that, that look reasonable to come back to. If you're, if you're playing the NASDAQ 100 or the triple Qs, that's around 245. I don't think you have to, and no one's going to ring that bell. We're going to probably not be able to do that here. Uh, but I, I, you have to find levels in the market. Dan talked about the 50-day uh, and where a lot of these stocks are actually fighting and holding some ground here. Uh, but, but nothing has changed. I mean, today we had some jobless claims number, which till, still tell you the pain that's in the labor market and underscore how the economy really does need to see more reopening. Maybe we'll get that. PPI came in very hot. I think we have inflation. We talk about that, too. And at some point, that's going to be destructive for for especially for for fixed incomes. But for now, um, I think you have a case where we had to pull back. Uh, There wasn't a lot of news flow. You layer on China, layer on elections, layer on a 30 VIX, or maybe that's why we have a 30 VIX. And and that's where we're going to be. I I don't see us. The market's not going to get away from you on the upside in the short term. Yeah. Let's talk financials here. We mentioned showing some weakness today. We got some big news out of one of the biggest banks. City announcing Jane Fraser will take over as CEO next year when Michael Corbett retires. She will be the first woman to run a major U.S. bank. The move completes a leadership shakeup that has been in the works for more than a year, and it comes at a time when the bank stocks have been struggling. City is down 36 percent this year alone. For the past five years, it basically hasn't moved. Let's talk more about all of this with Wells Fargo Security Senior Banking Analyst Mike Mayo. Mike, great to have you with us. Um, your thoughts on Jane as the next CEO. Should we expect any real departures from, from Mike Corbett in terms of strategy, given she's been working so closely with uh, the CEO and the CFO? Didn't really make too many major strategy changes as the head of global consumer. Well, I, I hope we see changes with Jane Frazier as the new CEO of Citigroup. When you look at the eight-year record of 
City CEO, you look at the stock price, City stock price is up one third, the bank index is up one half, and the broader market has more than doubled. So the stock price is underperformed. Citigroup today has worst in class efficiency, returns, and stock market valuation. The current CEO has done an excellent job to improve the resiliency a city group to a point where it's stronger than it's been in decades. But when it comes to strategy, I think the, you know, the current or exiting CEO has played it too safe. So I hope Jane Frazier takes a fresh look at the business mix, uh, takes more aggressive actions. As you know, I've been on your show and I've also gone to many annual meetings of Citigroup and said, you know, why don't you sell off Mexico? Mm-hmm. Why don't you sell off the consumer businesses in Asia? Why don't you act more aggressive? And the biggest mistake made by City's uh, current CEO is when he said a few years ago, our restructuring is over. So I hope with the new CEO, you have a fresh look and say, you know what? There's more restructuring to be done. And in Jane's background, she's not only consumer and non-U.S., she's also an ex-McKinsey uh, person. So put that McKinsey hat on and say, hey, how can we restructure Citigroup to improve profitability, not just for the next year, but for the next decade? Mike, it's Karen. Thanks for being on the hey, show. Um, let me just ask you um, about Citigroup, but it's more broad than that. Provisions for this coming quarter. How do you think these banks are set up going into what will be probably very, very elevated uh, loan losses? How do you think they're set up, not just Citi, but more broadly? Well, look, um, for Citigroup and the banking industry, these are sobering times. I mean, you are seeing unemployment stay high. You're seeing bankruptcies. These are tough times. But let's make a distinction between um, costs for bad loans and the bad loan losses themselves. And that distinction, it's a, it's a subtle but huge um, uh, distinction. In the second quarter, in the first quarter, banks took enormous losses for future loan losses. They reserved for future loan losses. So the reserving for future loan losses probably peaked in the second quarter. So those costs are likely to come down. At the same time, you should see the actual losses go higher over the next several quarters, but not too much yet, given the degree of government intervention and forbearance. So it's uh, shouldn't be too bad in the actual results. In fact, uh, we think that the provisioning was so much in the first half of the year that earnings for the big banks hit a low point in the second quarter. That should be the lowest point that you'll see through the course of this pandemic. And I think that's important. Mike, why is City trading at closing at $51, trading at 72% of tangible book, which according to City is, I think, $71.15, whereas most of the other banks are at least trading around tangible book. J.P. Morgan obviously trading north of that. I mean, what is Citi's problem, in your opinion? Well, their efficiency is subpar, their returns are subpar, and they've not been aggressive enough with restructuring their business mix. And even if you thought the current CEO had done a fine job, at the end of the day, you know, the stock market doesn't lie. And you're absolutely right. You're trading at 0.7 times tangible book values. That implies a huge hole in the balance sheet, which is not the case in our view. It's not like the global financial crisis when they had, you know, $50 billion of 
bad mortgage-related assets that needed marking down. You don't have that situation. So, you know, to us, this is an opportunity. Having said that, you lack a catalyst because you don't see enough aggressive restructuring. You have a business in Asia and uh, Mexico and the U.S. And for when it comes to wholesale banking, wholesale banking is global. Retail banking is local by okay. country. And that's a failed vision of the last 150, 20, 10, and a couple of years at Citigroup. This idea that Citigroup was going to serve that global traveler and service all their banking needs, that you have a customer in Hong Kong who sends their kids to boarding school in London and they ski in Aspen and they're going to be your super wealthy customer. That's been a failed experiment over any time frame. And that's why we, we call for more restructuring. And the concern with the stock trading so far below tangible book right. is not the sense of a hole in the balance sheet. I think it's just a concern. Can they generate returns above the cost of capital, which is a function of their business mix, which is a function of their willingness to go mm-hmm. ahead and make the tough changes. Mike Corbett, Played it too safe right. when it came to restructuring the business mix. Hopefully, Jane Frazier will be more aggressive. Mike, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo. Tim Seymour, do you like City more, less, or the same uh, versus yesterday before we knew that Jane Frazier would succeed Michael Corbett? Well, look, I, I love the social change here. I love the fact that Citibank's board is now going to be 50-50 gender, uh, you know, men, male, female. And I think uh, some of those steps, this is a, a move today that uh, should not be seen as extraordinary. And yet it is. And, and as I'm sure many people have said today, it'll be great when this is commonplace. Citibank, uh, the discount, I, I'm long Citibank, I'm long JP Morgan, I'm long Bank of America. Um, I feel very comfortable with the balance sheets that Mike referred to. Uh, I do think that the drivers today for Citibank longer term uh, are, are where they are going to extract the most value. It does seem that their commercial bank uh, is one that is infrastructure heavy. There's probably a, a lot of focus on global infrastructure for uh, Ms. Frazier going forward. I, I, I think uh, there are opportunities to re-rate. I do think that the banks have pr- thrown enormous provisions uh, in the next, you know, for the last two quarters and look forward to better times ahead. But I'm waiting for that catalyst. And I will say that even before COVID-19, and I'm sure Dan's got a view on this, banks were underperforming and they were underperforming even before they had uh, this headwind. Yeah, this might be more commonplace, at least on Wall Street, Karen. I mean, J.P. Morgan has pretty much telegraphed that the successor to Jamie Dimon will most likely be a woman. Right. I, I think so. I hope it is more commonplace. Right. J.P. Morgan has really seemed to set up a horse race between Jennifer Pipsack, who's the current CFO, but she used to be head of card services, and Marianne Lake, who was the prior CFO, and now she's uh, head of consumer lending. So both of them will have sort of outward-facing experience and then operating experience. They're both very young. One's 50, one, uh, Jennifer Peepsack's 50, I think Marianne Lake's 51. So when those rolling five years that Jamie Dimon says he'll retire in five years, when one of those actually is the five-year period, it will be one of those two. And I think they're both extraordinarily talented. And, and for Fraser, that's great. It's not a sh- complete shock. Maybe the timing was somewhat surprising. But I hope, as Tim said, this is, this is commonplace at some point, And we don't need to say, well, there's a female CEO. It's just, well, here's the great CEO. Right. 
All right, let's get to a developing story that we're following for you on Nikola. We're still awaiting a response from Nikola founder Trevor Milton to a scathing short seller report that sent shares tumbling 11 percent today. Hindenburg Research putting out a 90 page report that, among other things, calls Nikola a, quote, intricate fraud and claims Milton made dozens of false statements meant to inflate the EV company's valuation. The report also claims Nikola rigged truck reveals, staged misleading demonstrations. It said that it towed a truck up on the hill and filmed it rolling down the hill to suggest that it actually worked. It goes on to say that GM, which just announced an 11 percent investment in Nikola, didn't do its due diligence before making the deal. G- GM uh, telling CNBC, we're fully confident in the value we will create by working together. And we stand by the statements we made in announcing the relationship. Nikola did fire back today with Trevor Milton taking to Twitter to call the report a hit job, saying cowards run, leaders stay and fight for integrity. Hindenburg is only making people love us more for trying to destroy us. It will take the rest of the day to address the one-sided false claims, but I will put out a detailed report to address it. In the meantime, troll on. Uh, It was a 90-page report, so maybe it's taking a little bit longer for Trevor to come up with this uh, response here. But, Dan, Nathan, what do you what do you mean? I mean, you, the first response is we know in, in Hindenburg did disclose that it does have a short position in Nikola. But how is this different from somebody who's long, having taken a long position, then putting a report saying this is the next $1,000 stock or next $3 trillion company? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I think if you look back at Elon Musk's history um, with Tesla over the last te- 10 years, he faced a lot of criticism like this. There were a lot of things thrown at him, um, you know, and he, he took on the shorts and, and he won. And he even has a, 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 a Jim Short line on the Tesla.com website um, to, to show for it. Um, listen, you know, I, I generally don't think as an investor, um, I don't love to see founder CEOs get in wars with shorts. It just does. It's a bad look um, and it's distracting from from the business. Um, that being said, the fact that this stock gapped up 40% on that GM news um, earlier in the week was pretty astounding. It was, uh, I think, obviously a pretty impressive investment, but you've had two instances where investors, the SPAC investors that brought this company public and then GM had the opportunity to really do the due diligence here. So um, to me, you know, I, I suspect it's probably more the, the same. I doubt there's fraud there. I'd be surprised. But. Guy? Well, this is what I'll say. I mean, to answer your question to Dan, there is no difference uh, at all. I mean, you can do thoughtful work on the bull side and you can do thoughtful work on the bear side. The only real difference is, as we many people have learned the hard way, it's a lot more difficult to make money on the short side. With that said, and I obviously have no idea the veracity or the truth, I can't speak to that, but I'll say this. GM had better hope they did all their homework and crossed their T's and dotted their I's on this one, because if they didn't, and if there is some truth in this report, uh, the the $2 billion investment will have an exponential negative factor in terms of what it means for GM going forward, in my opinion. Uh, Again, having no idea the truth, the veracity, or whatsoever in terms of the report, but if I'm at GM right now, I am absolutely burning the candle at both ends to make sure I did my homework. Quick thoughts, Tim. Yeah, I think one of the differences, to go back to your first Mm -hmm. question, is they're alleging fraud. It's one thing to say that a company isn't worth the valuation. Uh, We've on this very show had Trevor Milton on, uh, and I think the term, you know, business plan, not business, has been used. There's there's a lot of allegations, including nepotism uh, at the company or that there's no real technology there. Um, But it's very different than alleging fraud. And so I I would just point out I have zero position in Nikola. Um, And and I, I, I... 
ultimately, short reports like this that are very sensational are also ones that I think investors have to pay attention to as well. Um, uh, the guys at Hindenburg are out there and they've done this uh, for a bunch of people. They obviously do I extreme in-depth work. So again, I'm, it's not an attack on Hindenburg. It's to point out that there are certainly opportunities uh, that people will get out there. Um, but there's a difference between fraud and an expensive valuation for a company that we're struggling with a lot of that in the market right now. Mm -hmm. and, and that may not be a crime. All right. Coming up, the mother of all bubbles. That is what one of our traders is calling a key part of the economy. He'll tell us what it is and why it's got him so worried. Plus, we're following the after hours action in shares of Oracle and Peloton, both stocks on the move uh, on earnings, both higher in the after hours session. Full team coverage of the results when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts for you on two big names, Peloton and Oracle, both on the move after results. We've got full team coverage. Let's kick things off with Josh Lipton in Oracle's quarter. Josh. So, Melissa, I caught up with uh, Kirk Matern over at Evercore. Kirk covers Oracle. I want to get his quick take. He calls these solid top and bottom line results, driven, he says, by a licensed revenue beat and lower operating expenses. Key questions on the call, Q2 guidance, which we just got, and I'll relate to you all. More color about its competitive position in the public cloud market. When does EPS growth, Kirk wants to know, translate into cash flow growth? Of course, another big question uh, is Oracle's interest in TikTok's U.S. operations. Kirk is actually previously written about that says it could make sense if Oracle sees that as more of an investment, meaning find a partner and then spend out the business. In that scenario, he says Oracle wouldn't run TikTok. Instead, it really just gains a big new internet customer for its cloud business. CEO Software Cats also giving some color here, saying our infrastructure businesses are also growing rapidly as revenue from Zoom more than doubled from Q4 last year to Q1 and this year. I have a high level of confidence, she says, that our revenue will accelerate as we move on past COVID 19. She uh, asked for guidance for Q2, which she just gave. She says EPS growing between 10 and 14 percent, so between 98 cents and a buck oh two. Revenue growing between one and three percent. She says, though, the company will make no comments about press reports about TikTok. So if you're waiting for news about that, doesn't sound like we're going to get it on the call. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Dan, what's your take on the quarter? Good quarter. I mean, that, that uh, cloud license rev uh, beat was big. Um, but the problem with this company right now is there's just no revenue growth. It's basically been flat year over year for the last four years. So when you look at some of the performance from some of its SaaS competitors like Salesforce that had a massive beat and the stock rallied 24% the next day, you're just not going to get that at Oracle. It's a value play for a reason. I do like it here. And I think butting up against 60 in a better market, you could play for a breakout here. And if they do happen to get TikTok for some reason and they're strategic about it, I think that would be a great asset for the, them to own. As Josh said, great cloud customer for them. So this quarter looked okay. I would not be selling it right here. I think it's uh, you know set up pretty nicely in a better market to break out above 60. All right, let's get over to Diana Olick with the details on Peloton's big quarter, a blowout, Diana. 
Yeah, total blow-up fiscal Q4 earnings from Peloton, which seems like the stay-at-home brand to beat. The fitness and streaming media company reported its first quarterly profit since going public. EPS came in at twice expectations. Revenues soared 172% from the year-ago quarter. Connected fitness subscriptions up 113%. Paid digital subscriptions up 210%. So take a look at how Peloton benefited from the new stay-at-home life that we're all in. In the company's first earnings report, it said to expect 880 to 895,000 connected fitness subscribers for the whole fiscal year. They ended up with 1.09 million, 23% more than forecast. Revenues they expected to be 1.45 to 1.5 billion ended up with 1.83 billion or 24% more than forecast. The only downer in this report is that they said you can expect longer wait times for deliveries on the bike or tread for at least another two quarters. Now, one stat I also thought was really interesting, Melissa, is that the average users' workouts per month in fiscal Q4 were twice what they were in fiscal Q2. And I think I'm going to call that your pandemic stress metric. At least it is for me. <laughs> me too, Diana. But I'm, I'm curious about that number. Um, I saw on Twitter, Rich Greenfield over at Light, Lightshed said that this is per household as opposed to per user. What is the distinction here in this metric? Well, it's the number of users in your household. So I happen to know a lot of people who maybe there was one user and then when the pandemic started, they mm -hmm. got a whole nother set of shoes. That is, you could have three, four, five users in the same house on the same piece of equipment. So I guess that's what pushed it up a bit. But I think it's also per individual user as well. That metric was way up. Okay. Uh, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Let's trade this one, Karen. It, it's amazing. Peloton just absolutely delivered on this one. It is amazing when you consider how high the expectations were, right? So just a couple of days ago, or it was, two, I don't know, two, one or two days ago, two giant upgrades, I think, to, you know, 110. And mm -hmm. so to be able to deliver on that and beat as, as by such a wide margin is pretty impressive. I, I thought that 24.7 million um, metric of monthly use was interesting as well. We don't know exactly who used it, how many times, but, but also the churn was really good at under, I think, 0.75%, so less than 1% per month <clears throat> churn. We'll see how that evolves as gyms open or as uh, economies reopen. Um, so I, I, I don't own it. I have bikes, but I don't. Uh, it's just too expensive for me, but outstanding quarter. I mean, in terms of a metric of user engagement, I wonder why investors aren't demanding to know the average minutes per subscription per month as opposed to the average workouts per month. Because if you're really if you really want to know how engaged your user base is, it would be how many minutes you are engaged with that actual product guy. I don't know what what your take would be or your take on the stock. No, that's is. interesting. Well, Look, Mel, you know this. I mean, they're all different class. You can take a five-minute uh, arms right. class. Or a 90-minute so, power zone endurance, and it's minute. all the same. It's, it's one workout. And, and that's fair. And, and I guess you, if you really wanted to break it down, I, I don't – and I'll push back and say I don't know how important that metric is. The fact that people are on the bike, people want the new bike, people like Dan have the treadmill, and we've said for a long time – it's not just a hardware company. I totally get what Karen's saying in terms of valuation, but I've said this for a while. I think the stock continues to grind higher from here, and I think you're going to start to see more analysts raise their price targets. Yeah. Tim, quick on this. Well, it, it, even more impressive when you consider they talked about a falling gross margin because of price reductions and that mm -hmm. 2021 sub-revenues are going to be flat. 
um, year over year. Um, obviously, we know what they've pulled forward, and yet the street doesn't care. So um, vertically integrated play, that is something that is impressive and why I think their margins ultimately are held on to. All right. Coming up, luxurious litigation. We'll tell you about a new twist in the deal drama between LVMH and Tiffany. And later, it's game on for the sports betting stocks. What tonight's NFL kickoff means for this red-hot space. Stick around. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Back to Fast Money. We get a key piece of housing data tomorrow before the open. We'll get weekly mortgage bailout numbers before the bell. They could give us the real read on what's been a red-hot housing market. In fact, check out the stats. You know them. Mortgage rates are at record lows. New home sales were at the highest level since before the financial crisis. Housing starts surge for a third straight month, and home prices continue to soar. The Home Builder ETF, which has more than doubled since the March lows. But one of our traders says the housing market is on shaky ground. In fact, he is calling it the mother of all housing bubbles. Tim, this is you. So why? Well, it's not. Yeah, the, I am that trader. And, and it's not it's not a shaky ground right now. But the mother of all housing bubbles is certainly upon us because we're in the mother of, of all liquidity bubbles and credit bubbles. And, and thank you, Federal Reserve. Rates are at zero. Remember, uh, before the financial crisis, rates were not at zero. They weren't even you know, they, they were significantly uh, off their highs. And we certainly had gotten to a liquidity bubble there. But if you think about the exodus out of urban centers and, and where people are buying homes and, and the fact that there are a lot of younger folks buying their first home. But the fact of the matter is the market and the demand um, is, is extraordinary. And the ability to, to actually borrow against housing prices that, yes, they are going higher, but people are buying a lot of houses that cost a whole lot less than the houses they were buying 10 years ago, especially when you consider the cost of houses in, in urban centers versus where they are in some of these regional markets. So um, I, I just, I think this is an extraordinary trade and, and I think it, it still has a ways to go, in fact. Um, but I think if you look at uh, some of the materials uh, opportunities within the XHB, I talked about Whirlpool yesterday, or, or Masco or Train or Carrier. Um, I think these are excellent, excellent plays still. Uh, and I think those are re-rating valuations. But at some point, this will end very poorly. Uh, these housing numbers that we're seeing in terms of new home sales are, are extraordinary, especially when you consider where the economy is. And the same way we've seen speculation in the stock market, we're seeing speculation in the real estate market. And, and frankly, I, I think that's something people should be wary of. All right. Well, our next guest calls housing a bright spot in the economy. Bob Nardelli is a former Home Depot CEO. He also ran Chrysler and was a GE executive and a fast money friend. Bob, always good to see you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And uh, if I can just pick up where Tim left off, I, I think, uh, again, I, I shared with you earlier, I think housing is a real bright spot. And I think the demand uh, for housing will continue for some period of time. It certainly is a seller's market 
And Tim, if you look at all of the support for housing, whether it's Home Depot, whether it's Lowe's, Tractor Supply, I'm really proud. All three of those CEOs are Home Depot leadership graduates. I'm proud to say uh, of, of their success. But I think this is going to continue for a while. I think with the pandemic, we're seeing people, as you said, Tim, moving out. And uh, I think they're moving to areas where housing prices will continue to be high. But I, I think this has a little more leg to it, Tim. I think it really does. So you think that the pandemic has caused changes that will last for much longer than a couple of quarters, Bob? I mean, the, the argument would be that people don't necessarily know what their job situation is going to be, whether they remain employed, for one, or whether yeah. or not they will be required to go back to the office, in which case having a two-hour commute to New York City doesn't really seem attractive. Well, if you look at a recent CEO survey so that I, I just uh, I just take a look at, 72% of the CEOs say they're their employees or associates are planning on continuing this hybrid model of working from home uh, and maybe going to the office once a week, once every other week. Uh, the other thing that you're seeing is a strong demand associated with this concept is in the used car business. Uh, you know, people are not going to be riding trains, they're not going to be riding subway. We're very concerned still about this distancing. So you see the demand for used cars also. Uh, being drugged along by this pandemic and this situation that we're in out there today. Mr. Nardial, it's Karen. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I got a question you might be uniquely situated to answer. In looking at Home Depot versus Lowe's, um, Ellison is about two years into his turnaround or restructure, whatever you want to call it. Do you think he can narrow that gap a lot more between the margins that Home Depot makes uh, versus what Lowe's does? Yeah. Well, if you look at uh, Marvin has, you know, worked at Home Depot. Uh, he came in from Target when we were there, and he really has sat in a number of chairs in the home company. Yeah. So if you look at where the stock was, you know, at its low at 70, trading up around 140 or something, uh, I think uh, recently, you can see he's already starting to restructure. He's already starting to do some things. Um, I think he'll work heavily on merchandising and reposition his merchandising. He'll work on branding. Uh, I, I think that he has the, the capability to certainly close the gap. I, I think Home Depot, of course, has uh, got many more years. One of the advantages Home Depot has here in Overlows is when we were there, you know, we opened a thousand stores and we celebrated the 2000 store opening. So if you look at one of the real bright spots for them and the recent survey show that uh, the majority of the population uh, lives within 10 to 15 minutes of a Home Depot. So strategically, the convenience factor is there for them. I think there's something Marvin is aware of and he might be able to pick up on. It's a, it's a, it's a very good point. Hey, Bob, it's Tim. And, and so to take that point, the next uh, the next step, CEOs are forced to run their companies more efficiently than ever. We saw uh, some margin inflection, companies coming out of the crisis lean and mean. W what are you expecting in terms of the turn here when we finally do get the economy to reopen? And you can answer it from the broader macro, but but also uh, in terms of profitability for a lot of these companies that, you know, are elephants that have suddenly learned how to dance. Yeah. Well, so I think there's, uh, there's a mixed bag out there. Uh, if you look at, we were just talking about housing, certainly a bright spot. If you look at hospitality, travel, industry, for example, you know, you just look at some of the big flag names like Hyatt and Marriott selling some of their facilities in prime locations. So people aren't using hotels. 
air travel is still down. You're continuing to see increased levels of furloughs, both for pilots, and there were some recent negotiations there, but certainly flight attendants. And then that just rolls downhill to them. If you look at what's happening to the major airlines and then the impact on Boeing over and above what they're having with their with their max problem, that rolls down to GE, GE uh, aviation, jet engine business. So I think it's really going to be a mixed bag. There, we talk a lot about a B recovery, and I don't think that B recovery is really affecting everyone. You look at, uh, you know, in your area, Tim, the, the restaurants in New York City. And, yep. and you know, I think it's going to be a very slow recovery for them. I think there'll be some real winners, and there'll be some people that won't see that B recovery. There'll be a little flat, low and slow for them. Bob, always good to speak with you. Stay well. Bob Nardelli. Guy Dami, does this make sense that housing is so strong in the economy we have? I mean, given where claims were this morning, given where unemployment is in general? I, with, just with, under those metrics, no. But then you factor in the fact that people are fleeing these big cities uh, looking to get out. And it, then it starts to make sense, coupled with the fact that interest rates are at ridiculous levels. So it all does sort of make sense. So maybe housing is a bright spot, you could say, for the wrong reasons. It doesn't matter, because if you've been in these stocks, you've done very well. And I agree with a lot of the things that Tim said and Mr. Nardelli said. I'll say this quickly. Karen mentioned Restoration Hardware yesterday, as did Tim. And we've been talking about this stock seemingly forever. Uh, Karen mentioned the short interest. I mentioned that because the stock traded close to nine times normal volume today. So I think many of those, if not all, got squeezed out. So we've been fortunate enough to be in RH Today was the day you pulled a ripcord and looked to buy it back cheaper. I think you're going to get that opportunity. Yeah, the RH CEO on Mad Money tonight, by the way. Uh, and we have got a lot more Fast Money coming your way. Here's what's up next. Sacre Bleu, new deal drama between LBMH and Tiffany. The luxury lowdown straight ahead. And later, game on. The sports betting stocks on fire as the NFL season kicks off. Should you take a gamble on these names? Find out when Fast Money returns. Diamonds are indeed a girl's best friend, unless you are LVMH, the Louis Vuitton owner saying, and intends to file a lawsuit against Tiffany. This just a day after Tiffany sued LVMH for trying to back out of its $16 billion takeover. Both stocks finishing higher on the day. So, Karen, like sands through the hourglass, the saga continues. What's your take on this turn? Yes. So LVMH has decided to counter sue. They seem to not be focusing anymore on that ridiculous letter from the French foreign ministry that was suggesting that they delay the merger, even though LVMH said it was legally binding. That was absurd. Now they're focusing on mismanagement, that Tiffany has been mismanaged during the pandemic and that they shouldn't have paid dividends. I always come back to the merger agreement, which specifically allows Tiffany to pay dividends. So Tiffany will be delighted to get Arnaud on the stand and, um, you know, question him whether he went to seek help from various uh, ministers in France, which it sort of seems that he does. Next up, we'll see what the Delaware court says. I expect that they will grant uh, an expedited uh, proceeding here. And so we hopefully hear that next week. Still no letter from the French foreign minister, by the way, in all of this. We're I, still waiting for that. 
I think they got a translated one, but not the okay. actual. All right. We'll see. Watch for the tra- actual one. Coming up, are you ready for some football? These sports betting stocks are. We'll be joined by a top analyst who will break down the names you should bet on next. And what goes with football? How about some chicken wings? One options trader sees the big profits in a poultry stock. We got that trade straight ahead. Much more fast than two. Breaking news out of D.C. President Trump just saying that there will be no extension on the TikTok deal. Uh, Dan Nathan, we were just reporting yesterday that perhaps they're going to look for alternatives to uh, the U.S. unit actually being sold. What, what's your take on this? Uh, you know, listen, I'm a little surprised, you know, to have such a turnaround in such a quick uh, time period, less than 24 hours. Um, but it just obviously increases the likelihood that we see a real bid from Microsoft and, and Walmart or Oracle or whatever it is. I just don't think there's going to be a deal. And I just think it's odd that the administration is so focused on TikTok when WeChat is really the company that they should be worried about, the one that's competing with almost every major U.S. tech company here and abroad and operates under the Communist Party, um, you know, over there. TikTok doesn't even operate in China. I know it's about U.S. data here, but WeChat is a much bigger issue. All right, let's move on to gaming. Uh, Pen Gaming soaring today on an upgrade to a new street high over at Rosenblatt. That call also giving a nice lift to DraftKings and Wall Street's betting on a big win for both stocks. When the NFL season kicks off in just a few hours from now, you can catch the first game tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time on NBC. Let's talk more about the return of the NFL, what it means to the sports betting stocks. Joining us now is Jeffrey, Jeffrey's gaming expert, David Katz. David, good to see you. Um, what, what does it mean for, for the season to start, for the season to play continuously? Well, what we know is that uh, a majority of the sports betting that's, that's gone on so far in the U.S. has been on football. In fact, if you look at September 2019, 69% of the wagers uh, that happened in that month were on football. Uh, out of uh, New Jersey, where we only have last year to go on, uh, I think 42% of the betting was, was on NFL last September. So there is an outsized amount of wagering that goes on uh, around football. So the start and continuation of the NFL season is, is really critical for you know, testing the demand in this market. Hey, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship that, say, you know, DraftKings and, and, and some of the other online betting companies have with the respective sports leagues? And, and, and you know, are, the, are winners being chosen now, at least ones that are going to get so far ahead of the competition? Because the addressable market here is massive, and we all know we're watching sports differently and interacting with betting differently and that states are on board with legislation, et cetera. Right. So, look, I think you make some very important points. Number one, uh, the size of the market, our estimate at Jefferies is $19 billion, which is a bit higher than most. Uh, and this is a story that we've been on and behind for, for quite some time. Uh, what we know uh, is that you know, the, 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 everyone is after this. This is a gold rush, right? And partnerships, uh, investments are happening. What we don't know is what the key success factors are ultimately going to prove to be, whether it's brands, whether it's consumers and eyeballs, whether it's social engagement or whether it's technology. And when we overlay that against our coverage and what we see here, uh, we we expect all of the above to be critically important. That leads us toward DraftKings, uh, who has captured a lot of eyeballs, has great technology and somewhat of a proven track record uh, through DFS. It draws us to Caesars, uh, who 
uh, has many of those parts, and we think forthcoming on the technology side. Penn has absolutely been a battleground stock in our coverage, uh, and they have yet to roll out their app. Uh, that is mm -hmm. going to be soft launch, as they announced yesterday, uh, within the next week or so, in one state. Uh, they absolutely have a brand and a platform that is renowned in Barstool uh, that, that's hard to ignore and hard to, to bet against. Uh, but seeing that technology and how engaging uh, and how productive it ultimately is, is the question that we're focused on. David, always good to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. David Katz. All right. Guy Dami, what do you say about the space? DraftKings is the place to be. It, it, I think it traded up to 44.79 in the beginning of June. Tested that level today. So you obviously have a bit of potential for this double top. I think it's going to blow through it. I think Evercore just initiated with a $60 price target. Disney would never do this in a million years, but it makes so much sense for their uh, for them to buy a, a product like this for their ESPN uh, distribution. It would be tremendous asset for them, in my opinion. But I think these stocks are real. And, you know, the Michael Jordan news was important. Mm -hmm. But I think regardless of what happens with sports this year, these stocks are here to stay. And I think DraftKings is the place to be. Karen, you've leaned towards Penn. He, he basically, David Katz, basically self-would-you-rathered and, and went to DraftKings. Uh, and we saw, we saw the stock gain about $800 million in market cap on the Michael Jordan announcement alone. So how do you feel about Penn versus DraftKings right. at this point? Well, I mean, they, they've closed the gap. I mean, I think it was the stock was, what, 32 when Portner was talking about the differential between the two is just way too wide. Obviously, that gap has closed. So this point, I don't know. I found sort of a cheaper, much sort of a, a little different spin on it, which is MGM. I believe in Barry Diller. I think he will be very important in helping them with their online gaming. And a reminder here, the NFL season kicks off in just over an hour from now when the Texans take on the Chiefs. You can catch a kickoff 7 p.m. Eastern time on NBC. Coming up, Option traders are beefing up bets on this beaten down name. Should you sink your teeth into this stock? We got the trade. And let's take a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. And there's Jim chatting with the CEO of RH. You can catch that full interview. Top of the hour in Mad Money. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Tyson Foods surging on news that the company will begin working to verify the sustainability of beef production on more than 5 million acres of cattle grazing land. Over in the options market, traders are betting this ESG play can lead to sustainable gains. Mike's got the action. Mike. Yes, on an otherwise weekday, this is one of the stocks that saw a little bit of strength. And we saw that in the options markets, too, where it traded three times the average daily call volume. And in fact, calls outpace puts by about 8 to 1. And one of the places we saw that activity was the September 66 and a half calls. We saw a thousand of those trade for about 40 cents. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock could continue that strength and rally through the 66 and a half strike price by at least the 40 cents that they paid. That would put the stock above 67 or so by the end of next week, betting on continued strike on the back of that news. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Mel Casey's given nine and a half. Are you taking that action? 
Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Come on. Are you, 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 you definitely. Well, Citibank, if, if you're playing with Citibank here, it feels like you're getting nine and a half points. I think trading at a discount. Uh, obviously, Jane Frazier going to do a great job, and I think there's a lot of restructuring in the tank. Buy it now. It took me like five beats to think of what Casey was actually referring to. <laughs> Karen. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to second what Tim said. I can't wait for the day where a female CEO is just referred to as a CEO. But that aside, my final trade is Lowe's. I do think that there is room, even if they don't get to the Home Depot margins, for all the reasons Bob Nardelli said, there's still room to go. So I like Lowe's. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Bears over Lions in week one, Mel. Um, I'm going to go with Viacom CBS here. I think this is a cheap asset. This stock acts really well for a stock down 30% on the year. Looks like it's breaking out, wants to get back towards 40. Guy Adami. We didn't you know, hear your Dan dogs tonight. You know, Dan got on my dogs. Yeah, that's exactly right, because I have them sequestered like Charles Van Duren, for those of you playing our home game. Uh, they were put in a separate <laughs> room. So you didn't hear Rocky or Russell today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.